Tired of asking why? Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast, where we are answering life's most difficult questions. Now, here's your host, Teresa Blaze. Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast. I'm Teresa Blaze, and today I have with me Michael and Cynthia Savage. I have a question. What would happen if you found out that the person you grew up and came to know and love was actually living a double life? We're going to get into that, and we're going to hear their story. It's kind of incredible. But before we get there, I want to hit a few uh, housekeeping items. First of all, I'm still working on a few things. I've actually posted on my Facebook group, and by the time you hear this, the article should actually be live, but I've actually done a, uh, or not, not on my Facebook group, but on the Facebook page, I've actually written an article dealing with accepting God's forgiveness and how sometimes that can be one of the more difficult things that you can do, even as a Christian. You'll likely find that on unresolved.life. And I've actually posted a question on the actual Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash unresolved life. What are some of the barriers that you have found um, accepting God's forgiveness? I'd love it if you would go there and answer it. Second, unresolved news. It's still a viable thing. It's still going. I have actually posted an article related to last week's episode dealing with blood money. What am I talking about? Well, you don't have to go there and read read it. It deals with Planned Parenthood and uh, blood money. So I'd, I'd love it if you guys would go check out that article. Leave a comment if you would. With that, I want to get on with the show. Michael and Cynthia, welcome to Unresolved Life. Thank you very much. Thank you. In like a brief overview, and then we'll kind of hit the details. How did you actually get to where you are? Uh, I got into crime while I was a, a broadcaster in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was approached by a group of people that saw that I was kind of a, I guess, a charismatic figure, at least enough to be able to talk to people and 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 seem to. I was a radio talk show host, not not that guy, not the the Michael Savage that everybody talks about. I, I'm totally different. It was at the very beginning of talk radio in the '80s. And I was approached by a group to, to uh, represent them in various activities overseas. Basically, what it came down to was international money laundering. I didn't know that at the time, that that's what I was doing. I mean, money laundering was generally thought to be drug money and that sort of thing. But this was, this was a deal to hide money overseas, launder it, and bring it back into the U.S. And I didn't believe them. I thought they were lying. And I said, look, you put a half million dollars in my account, I'll believe you. Uh, and they did it. And it was on after that. I was lost. I wasn't uh, saved. I wasn't religious by any stretch of the imagination. I left broadcasting in order to pursue a crime full-time, not realizing necessarily that it was crime. I just never asked the question. So it went on for a lot of years. I visited all these different countries, different banks. I've been all over the world at that time laundering money. And uh, when I was caught, I was indicted on a 101-count criminal indictment. In federal court, I went to trial, was convicted, and sentenced to 17 and a half years in federal prison. And it's 15 years, two months, and 28 days with good time. <clears throat> excuse me, which is what I, which is what I ended up doing. It was 15 years, two months, and 28 days. Um, I got saved in prison. Uh, went to seminary in prison, and became a Christian in prison. And I know that a lot of people don't believe that happens, and I, I certainly understand why. But it was a real deal. It took with me. Now, the thing is, Teresa, that I didn't tell my family that I was in crime. Uh, they had no idea. It was, a, it was a double life. And Cynthia, my wife, who's here with us right now, I had no idea that I was in crime until the federal government raided our house, uh, much like the, the, the news story from yesterday, which had to do with uh, how they, they raided the house you know, with all these different agencies of the federal government. And uh, Cynthia was pregnant at the time, and they took her away away from the house. I didn't know where she was, and they tried to interrogate uh, me as to what was going on. And I was playing the tough guy because I didn't know where Cynthia was. I wanted to know, and uh, that, that wasn't helpful. But that was the first time that she or anyone in my family knew that I was in crime. Uh, I got out in 2007, September of 2007, and tried to... Uh, become a pastor because I thought that's what I was called to do while I was in prison. And uh, that's not exactly how things went. But the the book that I wrote, uh, my memoir, uh, details the life prior to the crime, 
uh, and then the 15 years, two months, and 28 days. The story, I initially thought it was going to be kind of an homage to my wife, that she stayed with me that entire time, even though she was blindsided that day by finding out I was a criminal. Uh, it started out as that, but it really, God's will was that it was about how he saw us through that, uh, why he allowed these things to happen, and what it took to bring us uh, to him. That's kind of it in a nutshell. I want to kind of step back, and I want to touch on your uh, childhoods growing up. You said that you were not saved. So let's start with you, Cynthia. Did you grow up in a Christian home? What was your childhood like growing up? Well, I grew up in a Catholic, Roman Catholic home. I have seven brothers and sisters. My parents were devout Catholics, obviously, since there were eight of us. Um, we had to go to Mass every Sunday, regardless <clears throat> excuse me, of whether we were at home or on vacations or anyplace else. And so, we, had, we used to take vacations every summer, the whole family. We would all cram into a station wagon and 22-foot Shasta trailer behind the car, and we'd be gone for two to four or six weeks at a time. And you would think that we were all very close, but we were all very independent, <laughs> and, and uh, we weren't very close. But we had a traditional upbringing in Kansas. It was a religious home. And what about you, Michael? Well, uh, I grew up in the South in uh, Florida, and my parents went to a uh, Baptist church, Southern Baptist church, and I attended with them. Couldn't wait to get out. Was never interested in anything that was going on. Um, was part of the youth group, uh, got baptized, but only because everyone else was getting baptized. Uh, I had no clue who God was or what he did. Um, I paid zero attention. Uh, when we moved from Florida to Colorado, um, they joined another Baptist church there. I would attend, but again, I had no interest in religion or anything like that. We would just go and I would sit in the pews and pay very little attention to, to what was going on. Uh, there was no uh, fascination with God. I, I didn't know anything about being saved. I heard about Jesus. I heard you know, that type of thing, but I was not in any way religious. I didn't pray. I didn't do any of that at all. I was more interested in, in me playing football. And I was uh, uh, on the debate team. I acted, I, I sang in the musicals. I did all that kind of stuff in high school. There was, there was no religious training at all. How did you two meet then? <clears throat> I was a, a news broadcaster at the world's smallest CBS affiliate in Goodland, Kansas. And I was, like I said, I was, I was the news anchor for, for that CBS affiliate. And we played softball games and all that kind of stuff, charity softball games. And I met Cynthia at this charity softball game. And uh, the, the only way I can describe it, the way I talk about it in the book is it was love at first sight. I, I didn't believe in that until then. I fell head over heels in love with Cynthia. And it was just one of those uh, moments, and I can look back on it now and see where God said, you know, this is your wife. And she was this, you know, pretty straight-laced Catholic girl. And I was, you know, this wild and crazy broadcaster. And looking back on it, that was God's act saying, this is your wife, and this is who you need in order to survive the rest of your life. Wow. Okay. So with that as the backdrop, I want to kind of move forward into the introduction of the uh, people that, that, that brought you into the crime, do you know who they were? Yes, and I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> okay, and the, and the reason I say that is when I was in prison, Teresa, there were guys who would sit around and glorify their crime, what they did, um, their sin, basically. They glorify, oh, I was this, and I was that, and I did this, and I did that, and I had this and that. The people that I was involved with, I didn't name them to the federal government, um, and, and pardon me if this sounds rude, and I'm not going to name them to you, uh, because absolutely nothing good could come from that. And this is one of the reasons I don't spend much time in the book or, or when I preach or teach or, or give my testimony talking about what I did. Um, it's, it was wrong. It was bad. I'm sorry I did it. Um, but when I got caught, I was sorry I did it because I got caught. Uh, now I'm sorry I did it because it, it, it was a sin. It was, it was not glorifying God. It was glorifying me. And so the, the, the thing that it comes down to is I don't talk much about 
who I dealt with or what I did. Uh, suffice it to say that when I got to prison, people knew me. And for the first couple of years, I wasn't saved. I, <laughs> I acted like a, a heathen. And, uh, but people knew me when I got there. And, and there were some people waiting for me when I got there to take care of me uh, because I kept my mouth shut when I went to, to trial. That's interesting. That's right. So you essentially took the fall for this unnamed group, whoever they no, were. No, no, I didn't take a fall. I was no, guilty. I, no, I, I understand that. But what I'm saying is you went to prison and because you kept your, your silence, there were people in there to take care of you. I had two co-defendants when I, I got on the, the stand and I testified and took complete responsibility and cleared them. They were acquitted. Uh, I was guilty. Um, so I'm the only one that did time in my crime. My prayer is that those people get saved or are saved, uh, you know, from the, from the bottom to the top. Um, just, just suffice it to say, I wasn't a nice guy. I wasn't one of these, you see criminals on TV and they kind of glorify them as nice guys. That wasn't me. Cynthia, while he was being interrogated and dealt with, can you describe that night from your experience and what happened? Day they raided the house. It was a morning. And we were having morning coffee and uh, knock at the door. And then all of these people came just rushing into the house. I was standing near the door with my, with my cup of coffee in my hand, and, and they started asking where the guns were, where the knives were, where the children were, where, you know, and uh, I said, knives are in the kitchen, uh, you know, kids are at their other folks, uh, and they told me to sit down on this, we had this hall mirror with a large unattached mirror, and, and they kept telling me to sit down on it, and I was trying to tell them that the mirror wasn't attached and it wasn't stable and and they wouldn't let me say that. So I finally just kind of perched gently on the end of it. But it was a little overwhelming. And I almost waited for somebody to, you know, step in the door and say, Okay, cut, scene's over. <laughs> but I was asking them what was going on and they said that everything was fine, but they wanted me away from the house uh, while they were talking with, with Mike. And so there was a female police officer. I think she was in plain clothes. I'm not sure. And uh, she said, we're just going to go get some coffee someplace, get some breakfast. You want some breakfast? And I said, no, I've already eaten. I'm drinking my coffee. Well, we'll go get some more coffee. And we went to a uh, cafe. I think, you know, in retrospect, she was asking me questions, what I knew, you know, what does Mike do? What's your, you know, what, what do you do part of it? And, but it was a conversational thing. Uh, we talked about her child and um, I'm a nurse and her child had some developmental issues. And so we got off on that for a while and I kept asking when I could go home and she would make a radio call and they would, he, she would say, well, just a little longer, just a little longer. Felt like I was buying a car. You know, 20 minutes more, 20 minutes more. But uh, then it was like four or five hours later, we ended, she ended up bringing me home and all the, most all the cars had left from the house. And I just kept asking if Mike, Mike was going to be there. Is he okay? Is Mike going to be there? And I never really did get an answer. And then when, I, when she dropped me off, Mike was there. So it was all pretty surreal. So they did not arrest you, Mike, that morning. They actually let you stay? Once I found out they weren't going to bring Cynthia back, they basically told me, you know, we're not going to bring her back until we're through here searching the house. And, uh, I mean, we had FBI, uh, IRS, um, the Organized Crime Task Force was there. Treasury. Uh, Treasury, all these different people uh, going through our house. Once I realized what was going on, you know, I had two choices. I could either tell the truth or I could be the tough guy and lie. And of course I took the wrong tact. I was a tough guy and lied. And so it took a lot longer. I actually didn't get arrested until two years later. It took them that long to do the investigation and uh, arrest me. How did you, I mean, what did you tell your wife at that point? Did you tell her what was going on? No, I didn't tell her anything. I told her, you know, I'll figure a way out of this. I'd always figured ways out of issues before that she didn't know about. I didn't tell her anything. I mean, no one in my family had a clue. What was going on? None. Um, I, I had, I'd hidden it pretty well. Um, no one knew. My father didn't know. My mother didn't know. None of the kids knew. Cynthia didn't know. I never told them anything uh, about what I was doing or, or why I did it. And when, when trial was occurring, uh, they were bringing out stuff. And I was actually relieved that they didn't know exactly what was happening. I mean, I was going to end up going to prison. There was no doubt. 
they didn't, they never really got to everything. You know, they called it a Ponzi scheme and they called it all this other stuff, but the, it was international money laundering and laundering money. And then they, they charge you with all these other wire fraud, mail fraud, everything that has to do with your crime, they charge you. That's why it was 101 counts. And so I, I didn't tell her anything. Just, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. I got this. And uh, obviously I didn't. It was, uh, it was just one of those things where I wasn't going to say anything to, to bring anyone else down. It was, and that's not because I was a good guy. It was because I knew of the ramifications. And so I just, I just kept my mouth shut and, and went through you know, a couple, three different lawyers never even told them the full truth. Cynthia, when you were going through trial with Mike, did you ever have a point where you questioned if he was telling you the full story? Yeah, pretty much the whole time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A lot of it was just uh, bizarre. You know, one of the things that I can look back and see is that even before we were saved, you know, Mike mentioned how, you know, he saw me and knew I was the one. One of the things that... I knew was uh, yeah, I had um, a wife's eyes for Mike. My my eyes, my heart, everything saw him, you know, as he truly is, and not how he was presenting himself to others or even to me at times. But it was like he had built this whole other persona on top of it, what his core is and who his core is, and I couldn't shake loose of the fact that. That no, this this isn't Mike. This you know, <laughs> uh, this isn't him. This is the real Mike. You know, he's loving, caring, kind, compassionate, and yet the testimonies and the things that they presented showed him as anything but that. To me, I, I had two ways to go with it, and I knew my heart, and I knew that uh, my heart was with Mike, regardless of how this went. And there was no sense in trying to argue against that with myself. I can only imagine the stress that it would have put on the marriage going through that kind of a situation. Well, let me just jump in there and we'll get Cynthia's side also. But I want to say this. Cynthia was pregnant when they raided the house. And and our son was born, you know, a few months later. And our our youngest son was born a few months later. Cynthia was, uh, through the whole thing, she didn't ask me a lot of questions. There wasn't any of this demanding, I ought to know, I have the right to know. There There was none of that ever at any point. Um, There was just a committed woman to the relationship. Now, to me, on the other hand, I couldn't see how any person would stay with me through this. From the the time that I was first arrested up until probably a few months before I got out, I was certain she was going to divorce me. And there was times that I, you know, when I was in prison that I would tell you, you're not going to stay with me. You're going to divorce me. Nobody stays through this. And and look, uh, Teresa, most marriages don't last prison. Okay, I'm just telling you the, the vast majority, I, I would say as high as 90 plus percent, don't last through marriage and, and certainly not through, you know, 15 years in prison uh, because there's, there's, there, the visits are, are monitored. There's no conjugal visits. There's none of that going on. I mean, so I, and, and look, Cynthia's a beautiful woman and I was sure that she would leave me and she would certainly find someone better. And so I was the most insecure, neurotic mess uh, before I was saved. And even afterwards, I couldn't believe it until a few months before I was getting out. And I realized, she's actually staying. <laughs> it's been, been 15 years. She's actually staying. Uh, but that, I, I was a, a total wreck when it came to our relationship. I could handle the things in prison, the fights, the riots, the that type of thing, but I couldn't handle the, 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 the concept of my wife leaving me because I loved her that much. And it goes back to that softball field <laughs> in Goodland, Kansas, where I fell in love with her. I knew there was no one else for me but her. How did you then go from this rough and tumble guy who's not really a nice guy to suddenly meeting the Savior? It was through no plan of my own. Uh, I, I was assigned to the kitchen to work in, in the kitchen. And uh, when I first got to, to, to the federal prison and, and in the, in the kitchen, I was able to do, understand I'm unsafe. I was able to do all kinds of things. I could uh, make illegal alcohol. It's called Pruno um, because I had yeast, bread, and all the things to make this as illegal Pruno that I could sell in, on the compound to these guys as alcohol to drink. Having a, a kind of a mathematical mind, I don't do well with linear things like checkbooks. Cynthia won't let me handle the checkbook. <laughs> But I, I can do statistics and things like that. 
but I was able to put together a sports betting book. I'm doing all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's kind of beginning to come together in the kitchen, uh, being able to be there. And all of a sudden, one day, I end up getting transferred to the chapel. And I'm angry. <laughs> Why are you taking me out of my business to send me to the chapel? And I meet with the chaplain. And I said, yeah, you, you don't want to be here. I said, I don't know anything about God. Got me. He said, look, I, I read your, your paperwork. And in prison, your paperwork is all the stuff that the federal government says about you, about your trial, about what they think you are, what they proved you are, all that kind of thing. He read it and he says, you know what, there's something, you know, God touched me and, and I really feel like you would be helpful here in helping organize the chapel. And I, I told him, I said, you don't want me organizing anything. I said, you know, I've been in prison, you know, for, for, for organizing stuff. This is not going to be a good idea. But he convinced me to stay and I said, okay, I'll stay. And so for about six months while I'm there, uh, I just set up and organized stuff for 13 different religious groups. You know, the, the Christians, the Catholics, the Jews, Muslims, uh, Mormons, Nation of Islam, all this. Different, I set up there or, and organized their services for them, make sure they've got the right rooms and people are coming in. And my job on, on a Saturday night was they always had visitors you know, come in to preach. And that was my least favorite thing because it was always the same you know, thing. God loves you and all this kind of stuff. I, had to, I would sit in the back, wait for them to finish. And then when they were done, then I would clean up the chapel and, and head back to, the, to myself. But I, I just didn't like it. But one night I'm sitting in the back, got my head down, just kind of going, is this guy ever going to finish talking? And like a hundred times before, he says, let me lead you in the sinner's prayer. And at that point, I was kind of just, I was fed up. I had a long time left to do in prison. Um, I, I really didn't want to hear this, but I, I said, you know, all right, I'm just going to pray this. I'll see if there's a God out there. And I prayed. And it was, it was his version of the sinner's prayer. I mean, you know what it is. You know how things go. And so I start praying. And I just say it out loud. And out of nowhere, Teresa, I mean, I wasn't looking for God to do anything. It was just out of nowhere. All of a sudden, I begin to understand God's grace and God's love. I mean, it's just, and it wasn't in words. It was in patterns. I saw things about my life, who I was, what I had been, what an awful person I had been, what an awful person I was. I saw love my wife. And it's not in words, Teresa. It was in, in patterns and pictures. And I lifted that up to him. And I said, look, I, I'm a wreck. I'm wrecked. I got no hope. I got no life. I'm here in prison. My wife's out there. She's not going to stay with me. I've lost everything. I've already lost all the stuff we ever had. And this love, this is the only way I can describe it, descended on me. And I mean, it just, it's like it, it coated me on the outside and went all the way into the inside. And it was a moment where there was a transformation of who I was to who God wanted me to be which was his son. He didn't want anything from me. He didn't want me to do anything. He, he just wanted to put his love on me and in me. And when he did that, I described earlier on how I saw Cynthia and I knew this is it. Well, I knew that this is it. This is God. And I, I prayed the prayer. You know, the words are coming out, doing all that kind of stuff. But those are just words. The real transformation took place inside. He took out this, this heart of just absolute stone and then i described it this way as saying that and i'm a little upset with him so Teresa, about this he put in a marshmallow instead and it was <laughs> this this soft hearted feeling for people caring for people heart i you know I, I confessed every sin i could think of and i'm sure there were much more and he, he you know he, he took it so yeah i know remember i'm god i know everything it's not like just just let it loose, son, and, and, and let me help you. And, and he did. And, you know, some people don't understand this, what I'm saying. They just, they just don't get it. And I understand that. But there was a, a transformation that took place right then. Now, I, now, now, understand clearly, I had no idea what being a Christian was. And, and I walked out of the chapel a different man, but I didn't tell anybody. It was like, one, I have no idea what's going on. And two, I'm not going to look soft in front of these guys. But a couple of weeks later, I told the chaplain, he goes, yeah, I noticed. Said, I know. <laughs> well, dude, why are you making me say this if you already know? But he said, I know. He says, I know. And God's got something planned for you. 
So that's that's what happened to me. You suddenly have this encounter with God and you're starting to kind of change. Now, Cynthia, did you around when did you come to know the Lord? I actually um I knew about him, you know, growing up, obviously, and I prayed and <clears throat> you know, const- you know, constantly, of course, during that particular time. It, it was always a sense of I felt like I was waiting in line that uh, I didn't have as much priority for God to listen to me in what I needed as as people that were <clears throat> not getting enough food or, you know, living in hostile environments or getting blown up by bombs or anything else. I kind of felt like my problems were a little um, childish, petty. I don't remember if it was the next weekend that I came to visit Mike or shortly after that, that uh, um, our youngest, Jesse, and I went to visit Mike and uh, in Lompoc, they have a little outside area, <clears throat> excuse me, with picnic tables. <clears throat> and we were talking and Mike took me through the, you know, the, the prayer and what I got, what I understood, all of a sudden, it was just this clear uh, a clarity that we don't have to wait in line for God to answer our prayers. You know, it's not like it's a, you know, you're on hold on the phone until, you know, they get to you. It's he's everywhere all the time. And it took the concept of everywhere to a, a, a significant you know, place to me so, so that I knew that I wasn't interrupting him if I talked to him about what was going on with me. And I wasn't interrupting him. Um, he was... He was able to be fully present with me as much as he was with Mike, as much as he was to anybody else that was in dire straits or great straits. And that was the, that was the biggest uh, revelation that occurred with me with the salvation experience. Mike, I want to kind of press into that a little bit. She said a couple of weeks. So she comes to visit you a couple of weeks later after you've had this encounter with God. How did you go about explaining to her that suddenly you're now a Christian? I just told her straight out. One of my traits, Teresa, whether I was a criminal or not, was I'm a straight shooter. Um, and that's probably a poor choice of words. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I speak boldly, <laughs> clearly, when it comes to, to things. My deal was I told her. And she was pleased. She was happy. Uh, the, so it, I just told her. There was, there was no hidden anything with that. When God changed me, he made me transparent. And it's one of those things where I, I'm sometimes too transparent. You know, I, I, I just told her and that was it. And she was all on fire. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I It wasn't like I, I hid it from the inmates for a while because I didn't want them to look at me as being soft. With Cynthia, I was just straight out about it. Yeah, to me, it was a matter of, oh, good. He's finally becoming this man that I knew he had in there. This was the man I married. You're in prison, and and Cynthia, you've come to know the Lord. Was there a difference in the relationship between you two going forward? For me, it did. It gave me another solid footing. But for Mike, it took him a little bit longer to realize that. (laughs) It (laughs) It took him many more years to realize that that didn't guarantee that I was staying with him. Right. Uh, You remember, Teresa, at the beginning, uh, I was talking about how I was living a double life. After I was saved, it wasn't as much a double life as there was one, on one hand, uh, I was gifted by God with the ability to teach and counsel and do that sort of, went to seminary, uh, got two master's degrees, got my doctorate while I was in prison. uh, And I I was able to teach and preach and counsel these guys. There were times that guards came for counseling and and, and that sort of thing. I became on the outside, uh, a person that was reliable, that they could come to talk with, People across the border, I mean, all, all kinds of people, the, the Nation of Islam, I used to have dinner with him every Friday night. We would talk about God and we would talk about all of these things. Uh, Native Americans, you know, I would talk with them and, you know, I would attend their sweats and do all that sort of thing. And, and some of them came to Christ because of that. Um, there was this, this evangelical part of me that could preach, that could teach, that could help people and do all that. But inside, the part of me that was, was most afraid was most afraid of losing Cynthia. I could lead people to the Lord, salvations, we were doing baptisms, we were doing all of the things. When I was preaching or teaching, I was on fire inwardly at night. 
I would fear most that that Cynthia was going to leave me, that that she already had and I just didn't know it. There was still this part of me that was insecure and unsure and afraid and and begging God that it wouldn't happen and at the same time certain that it would. There, there was this, this man of God on the outside and there was this child of God on the inside that was insecure and afraid, knowing that he didn't deserve a woman to stay with him, uh, didn't deserve the family to stay with him. And, and so there, it was a struggle for me. I, I would see people whose families would leave them after they'd been in prison a couple of months um, or, or a trial they would have left them. And these people were devastated. And I, I, I felt devastated even though Cynthia never gave me even one hint that she was thinking of leaving or doing anything like that at all. But there was, there was this part of me on the inside that had to, to, to go through that and grow uh, in order to understand um, that, that God just wasn't going to let us be taken apart because of prison or anything else. It kind of strikes me because there's a lot of people, maybe they haven't gone through prison like you have, or like a physical prison, but man, they're going through a lot of spiritual stuff right now. They're kind of in a spiritual prison, and maybe on the outside, they look like they have it all together, but on the inside, far from it. Would you Would you have something to say to them? You're saved. You know you're saved. You believe in God. You trust all that, but there's that little part of you inside, that little thing that is a big thing to you that you're just not quite able to turn over to him because you're sure you're right. You're sure that you don't deserve the forgiveness because of this or because of that. And the thing is, that little thing is what God's been working on all along. It's not that all this other stuff doesn't matter. It's that that little thing inside of you that you're holding on to, that you're sure God's not going to forgive because it's so terrible. That's the very thing he has been working on all along. And he's brought you to this point to help you surrender it to him. I think that is the hardest thing to do. Um, I know from my own personal experience, there are things in my past that I, I look back and I, and I look on them with disgust because I, I just absolutely hate what happened. When you face those skeletons, for lack of a better term, I think that is the hardest thing to do is to surrender even those deep, dark things over to God. Here's the one thing that may help people is that God already knows, all right? He, he already knows. I, I teach a class every so often at different uh, colleges or whatever, and, and one of the ones I like to teach is what's called theology of prayer. And, and one of the things that I, when I first bring these people into class, Therese, is I tell them, all right, guys, from now on, no amen at the end of your prayers, except for two reasons. One, you're praying over food. Say amen so we can eat and let's move these things along. Um, the, the second thing is if you're praying in service, say amen so they can go to the next thing. But in your private prayers, never, ever say amen. And they get offended, Teresa, immediately. Oh, that's how Jesus said amen and amen. Or, Jesus is God and you're not. So hold on for a second and listen to me. Amen sometimes when we're praying is like hanging up the phone. Right. Uh, if, if I call Cynthia and say, Cynthia, you're a great person. I really love you. You're, you're really terrific. And here's what I want you to do. For I want you to do all this, 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 and this, and this, and this. Okay, goodbye. And I hang up. That's not much of a relationship. All right. That's me lying because I may not feel she's great that day. She may have done something that I'm upset about. Well, we may not feel like praising God on a certain day. That is entirely possible. We may be having a, a rotten day and we don't feel like. So don't lie to him because he knows that you're lying. Talk to him like he's real, like he's a real person. You know, God, right now I'm not praising you because I just feel the weight of the world on me. I feel like this is a, a very difficult time. I can't get through this. I'm not sure you're hearing me or listening. Tell him that. He already knows. Just put it out there. Talk to him sincerely. And don't say amen. Don't hang up the phone. Talk to him throughout the day. Continue that conversation past your quiet time with the Lord in the morning or evening or whenever you have it. Continue that conversation, no matter what you're doing, whether you're grocery shopping or picking up the kids or, or just generally mad because of something that's happened. Your, your sports team has failed to, to you know, support you. Whatever it may be, keep just talk to him like he's a real person. Treat him like a real person. And, and I, you know, the first time I, I taught that, I got reported to the academic dean. And he called me and said, what did you say? 
And so I told him, he goes, you know, that makes sense. <laughs> the idea that, this, this is pretty good, you know? And, and it was one of, that's what I learned in prison. You know, I would walk and talk with God. We'd walk around the track in the exercise field, or I would talk to him in the dorms, you know, and, and some people thought I was crazy, but he talked back, you know, either through scripture, through circumstances. I mean, and sometimes God says no. And, that, and that's not a request for more information. It's because no is no. It's not any good for you. It's not his will for you. I found very similar to your experience. I found that he really does speak. It's just a matter of sometimes we got so much noise. We don't listen. It's not the noise. It's because we don't expect him to answer. If you look in the Old Testament and you, you, you look at Abram, then later Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, when they prayed, they expected God to answer. It wasn't like, oh, you know, he's not going to answer. I'm just, they expected an answer. And guess what? God answered. So what changed between them and now? Uh, people got this idea of what religion is and isn't. You know, I mean, when I was in prison, I had a lot of Christian groups want to either beat me up or stab me or stuff like that because I didn't agree or, 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 or go along with what their pet doctrine was. My deal is a relationship with God, not with some doctrine you may come up with. I taught at a Pentecostal college here in, in, in uh, not here, I'm in Texas, it was in California. And the Pentecostals I ran across in prison wanted to beat the tar out of me because they thought I was a Calvinist. And the Calvinists wanted to beat me up because they thought I was Pentecostal. And, and, and the problem is that most people get caught up in doctrine rather than relationship. I didn't know any better. I didn't know that God isn't supposed to talk back. I didn't know that I'm supposed to suffer and go through all these things before my heavenly father who loved me so much that he gave his son for me will talk to me. We act as though he's not our father. He's more like somebody we have to convince. You know, he's like some grand Santa Claus. What have you been good today, Michael? Then maybe I'll, that's not God. God is a father who loves it. And, and so that's been my my attitude moving forward. I didn't know any better that you were supposed to struggle so much. The argument that I hear so often, and I mean, this is an argument that I've had, and then we'll get we'll get to your 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 thought in a second, Cynthia. Uh, but this is a thought that I've had is oftentimes we hear that God wants to have a relationship with you. We hear that He's a loving Father. We hear all these things, but life screams bloody murder. The opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Cynthia, we're going to let you in on this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but Teresa and I are going head to head right now. <laughs> Teresa, I'm going to argue with you that it's not that he wants to. I don't think that anywhere in scripture does it say he wants to. He is having a relationship with you. All right. And, and you know, and that may be the professor part of me, and, and forgive me, but the, he is, he is at this moment having a relationship with you right now. And so whatever it takes to get his point across, he's going to get across. And for me, it took going to prison for 15 years, two months and 28 days, fearing for 15 years of that, that my wife was going to leave me in order to get me to change and be the man of God he wants me to be. Now, Cynthia, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, going back to the, the uh, comment you made about there's so much noise that you can't hear him because of the, whether it's the world, common events, you know, uh, current events, kids, families work or if it's just too many TV ads or something, the the noise oftentimes I found when I am not hearing clearly um, from him, it's usually me that's making the noise because I'm afraid of what he's going to answer. <laughs> you, know, you know, Lord, you know, I, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever it is that you want me to do. Just make it clear to me what it is, which, you know, which way I should go. And if I start here, start to hear him saying, you know, that the ways he's saying I should go is not the way I want to, then I think I do the old, you know, stick my fingers in my ears and go la 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 la. And I think, I think a lot of times it just, it just prolongs the whole thing because he's going to. God is in charge of everything afterwards. Um, it's just whether or not how quickly I'll stop the internal singing or noise making to to hear him. You know, and I think also that that's often true. I think we hit our, our, a lot of the noise that we hear is our own head chatter. But then I think there's also the enemy. I mean, he loves to intervene and and put his own to, own twisted spin on things. And then, so, you know, like in Ephesians 6, where, where God commands us to pick up the armor, 
you know, to fend off the fiery darts and the arrows. Well, what are the fiery darts and the arrows? Uh, many times it's those thoughts that we can't seem to get rid of. You know, Teresa, one thing that that I used to struggle with early on, um, and of course it was while Mike was still in prison, and I understand I couldn't call him if I had questions. I had to wait until his day was over and he could call me in the evenings. Um, so when I would have questions, then I'd have to be, you know, kind of figure them out on my own. But one of the things that I, you know, when I was trying, struggling with some decision about what, uh, what I should do next, or I don't even remember the specifics, but it was a matter of how do I know that this is God talking to me? And how do I know if this is me talking or the world or the devil or, you know, any of his minions? How do I know it's him? And the scripture came up that, you know, when Jesus says, you know, I'm the good shepherd, I know my sheep, my sheep know me, they're not going to be answering the call of somebody else, they're going to wait to hear my voice. And that scripture, you know, of course, I paraphrased it, but that scripture filled me with the knowledge that, yeah, if indeed uh, Jesus is the good shepherd and I'm his I would recognize his voice just as I would know if I heard my father's voice yelling at me or my mother's voice or something. Um, realizing that, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to hear it because he tells me I'm going to hear it. That helped me through an awful lot of, of confusion times. And that was just thrown out there. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a very good word. And I think also it seems to me that, uh, you know, if we are, if we are blood-bought saints and children of God, you know, anything that is not of God is of the Lord of darkness. Mm-hmm. And um, and God is not a God of chaos. Could amen. Feel. Amen. Yeah. He is a God of order. He is a God of, you know, he will answer and he will answer in a way that you know it is him. Mm-hmm. And so, whether you like the answer or not, sometimes, <laughs> and, and you know, uh, that's a big issue because a lot of times it's like Christians do not like the answer no. Mm-hmm. So, well, Mike and I both heard no from God for about fifteen years there. So, <laughs> yeah, and that was that was a deal. <laughs> no, that was one of those things that, that had me questioning at times. We'd have people come in, uh, and they would they would pray for me, and and at times that there were those that would prophesy over me and say that you're not going to do all your time. You're going to go home soon. God hears your voice. God knows you need to be with your family. And and they were well-meaning, I think, uh, people. And Teresa, I did every day of my sentence. Okay? I mean, I didn't get out early. For for the 13 years, I was like a, a pastor to the inmates. I was a teacher. I was a counselor. I helped uh, the chaplains at a, at a new facility set up a whole thing. And I'm thinking all along that God's going to remember me and I'm going to get out early. And I didn't, not not one day early, Teresa. And it was it was one of those things where, if I had, I would have been convinced that if I did enough good works, God would be favorably inclined towards me. Where now I know that even in the midst of all of that, He was favorably inclined towards me. That that He loved me and continues to love me. And you know, I think that's one of the reasons I don't get invited to speak at many churches or <laughs> that sort of thing is because I'll tell you, just you know, Santa Claus is the one that rewards the good here on earth. Um, for us, our job sometimes is to struggle and to let other people see our struggles and see how we handle it as human beings that are that are loved by God. And sometimes, and and I, look, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up. As a child, there was oftentimes that I was upset with my parents because they didn't give me what I wanted, uh, particularly that chainsaw when I was eight years old. So my, my point through all of that is that, that God conforms our character and, and changes us. And look, there's, there's people today that don't believe I've changed. Uh, there are people today that, that think that, you know, once you're a criminal, you're always a criminal. And I get that and I understand that. But for the people who will listen to the message that, that Cynthia and I have received from the Lord, um, I want them to be blessed by that. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to have to struggle as much as we did unless it's the Lord's will that they struggle that much. I want them to understand that it's okay to go through difficult times. That your father is still there. You are a child of God. Nowhere in Scripture are we ever referred to as adults of God. We remain his children, and but we grow. But that doesn't mean we need to be childish in our attitude towards him. 
And, and that's the change in me. I don't expect to be rewarded for doing good. I, I, just, I just want my father to, to love me and for my love for him to grow. Wow. So if you could sum up your message then in one simple uh, statement, what would it be? God is God and you are not. Amen. Amen. And Cynthia? Oh, I can't top that. <laughs> I guess and no matter how much you grow, you'll always grow more until God's through perfecting you. Yeah, there you go. You're always a child of God. Yeah. Always, no matter what. There was a wonderful sermon that I heard by a man named Brennan Manning. And he said the, the title of it was God loves you the way you are, not the way you ought to be. Another something, John, I'm going to throw it in real quick because I know you're probably about done with us. But something else that was very important for me to learn about God was that he could handle my anger. You know, if I was angry at him for something, I could tell him I was angry and I could rant and rail at him. And it wasn't going to, to, you know, he wasn't going to get his feelings hurt and, and decide he wasn't going to talk to me anymore. But he actually almost kind of encouraged that because it was an honest expression of emotion. There you go. You know, I actually did a podcast. It asked the question, is it all right to be angry with God? And, you know, I came to that same conclusion. I mean, if you look at Habakkuk. Um, oh, my you know, gosh. Or Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Job. Are you to be as to me a deceiving stream, oh, Lord? <laughs> he, just, he goes, oh, stop it. Just, you know, that's the Mike Savage version. But it's, oh, just stop it. Repent. Let's move on, Jeremiah. <laughs> You know, I mean, you look at Job, you look at Habakkuk, you look at Jonah. I mean, yes, there were points of repentance, but everything or David, look at look at look at David pinning the Psalms and hey, God, do you see me down here? I'm like really struggling and these people are really getting they're getting stuff over me. They think they got me figured out. Oh, uh, hey, God, I, I'm still getting arrows tossed my way. Come on. You know, yeah. I mean, and and so. The question is, is it okay to be angry with God? I believe so. Nowadays, it's a matter if you're supposed to praise him, even in the bad times, <laughs> oh, well, which is totally against Help what scripture me. says. Help me you know, with that. Thank you, God, oh, for God. the hard times I'm going through. I really do pray. Uh, you know, it's more like, God, why are you doing this to me? What do I do? What do yeah. I have to learn? <laughs> you know, it reminds me of Teresa as a child crawling up on their father's lap and saying, I just think you're the best dad ever. You are just great. You are wonderful. You're my favorite person ever. You're a great dad. Now, while I've got your attention, could I have a new toy, please? <laughs> the, that's, that's what it reminds me of. And, and the thing is, God knows when you're lying. Yeah. Okay? He knows. So no, no matter how good of a lie you tell him, he's already going to know. So tell him the truth. Be honest with him. Mm -hmm. So that's probably way off the subject and off the the, the thing, but I, I just, I, people need to know he knows when you are lying, <laughs> when you're praising him and you don't mean it. So why not just be honest? Be honest. But then again, you know, this isn't totally off the subject because you asked about where we've grown from oh, yeah, and right. to. So we, we're just right. taking no, we're, along our path. We're, we're pretty old. So as a result, <laughs> yeah. you know, we can, we can come back to that. Yeah, we are. I'm almost a Medicare agent. <sighs> I want to kind of end this by encouraging someone who may be listening to this and going, I want the kind of relationship that you guys have with God. You guys have a relationship with, with a God that I don't know. Mm -hmm. And um, so would someone, would one of you be willing to address that? If someone wants to get to know God, how do they do it? Well, you know, Teresa, I'm kind of a practical guy when I came to, to God. I, I, one, I wanted to know, where does it say Jesus is God? And I made the mistake of asking a Mormon. He said, look, right here in the Book of Mormon, he was a God, right? He said, God, What? So and then I went to the chapel and I said, what's this about Jesus being a God? What is that all about? He says, no, 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 come over here. And he took me to John and beating was the word. And the word was with God and the word is God. So I immediately had to learn Greek in order to make sure he wasn't lying to me. Right. So the next, and I, and I did, Teresa, I mean, I, <laughs> I had plenty of time. So I went to ever to do that. But here's the deal. In first Corinthians chapter 15, one through 11, there is a checklist that Paul provides of what you must believe in order to be saved. And the reason he did that is because people got caught up in all these other things. We need to speak in tongues. You need to follow Apollos. You need to follow this person or that person. And Paul, after 14 chapters of, of addressing all this nonsense in the church, stops and says, now, look, 
these are the things that you must believe in order to be saved. These are the things that I, I brought to you that I first preached to you, which you believed, which also you were saved in, unless you believed in vain. And there is this checklist in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. It is my pet scripture because it provides exactly, exactly, Teresa, what you must believe in order to be saved. And so I, I would tell the person who wants the relationship with God, go through this checklist. Do you believe those things? Now, you can believe those things and still have questions. You can believe those things and still be in pain and still have issues and all of these other things. But realize, first of all, that you were saved. And if you were saved, your father is the creator and sustainer of all things, all the things you see and all the things that you cannot see. He is your father, the creator, the supreme creator of everything. From the chipmunk in the ground to you, he created everything, the grass, the sky, the stars, the moon. That is your dad. Now, if that's the case, if this is your dad, what won't he do to help you grow in closer relationship with him? What is it that he would hold back? There's nothing that he would hold back. And so rest assured, that's your dad. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you felt, no matter what you think, the creator and the sustainer of all things is your dad. It's okay to take your pain and your struggle to him. Yep. <laughs> I, you, got, you guys, if, you, if you've been following the show for a while, you know I've been through a lot of garbage. Yep. I've gone through a lot of hell. And it's okay to take that hell to him. Yep. Mm -hmm. In fact, he wants you to do it. He, yeah. he desires that. He desires that so much. Uh, the Bible says that he, he came down to take that sin code, that ugly sin code that's written in each and every, every one of us. He took it to the cross. Yes. He then, di he then died and rose again on the third day. And now he's going to come back. You know, right. and that's what we're waiting for. That's the hope that we have. No matter how much hell, how much pain, how much garbage, how much filth we have to deal with in this world. Yeah. Our hope is that he is coming back. And you notice, Teresa, that it's him breaking down the gates of hell, not them breaking down the gates of heaven. Amen. Amen. So, oh, guys, I think with that, we will leave it there. You've been listening to the Unresolved Life Podcast. To catch all our past shows, go to unresolved.life. That's unresolved.life.